All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Ezra chapter 3. It is Christmas season, and we are thankful for, uh, for the time to celebrate and focus on the coming of Jesus Christ, His birth, and uh, his, his, the revelation of who He is to us through, through that Son of Mary. Uh, the birth of God's Son is, is a special season of, of the year when we really focus on His incarnation, and we are blessed by it. Next week, we're going to be blessed by the creative telling of the Christmas story from our little ones. Our children are going to come in and, and share a children's pageant with you, uh, which will be a blessing. But as we prepare our hearts for the season, I want us to be focused on a, an Old Testament passage of Scripture today. Now, this third chapter of Ezra that we're going to be looking at together, is it a prophecy of the Messiah? No, it doesn't tell us directly who the Messiah would be. Is it, as a, pa is it a passage about generosity and charity, which are themes that we often think about during the Christmas season? No, it doesn't have to do with those things. Is this an Old Testament passage that gets us ready for the coming of Christ or points a picture of who Jesus might be when he does come? Well, in truth, in reality, if we properly understand the Word of God, we realize that this whole book points to Christ. Every bit of the scripture points to the work that God intends to do through his son, Jesus Christ. So no matter where you're at in scripture, it's all geared towards helping us see God's great plan for redemption. So any bit of scripture can point us in some way, shape, or form toward the powerful truth of Jesus Christ. But this particular passage that we're going to be studying today in Ezra is not so much directly linked to the, the Christmas season as it is an illustration an illustration of a common experience that many people contend with during this special time of year. Ezra is a book of the Old Testament that records the events that happened during and directly after the exile of God's chosen people, the Israelites. See, God had covenanted together with this chosen people, the Israelites, that they were going to be his special nation, and he was going to be their God. They would follow after the laws that he revealed to them, and in doing so, they would represent the truth of God in this world of rebellion against God. God had made a covenant with them, first through, Mo through Abraham, then through Moses. This law was delivered to the Israelites. But Israel had failed to uphold their portion of the covenant. They did not keep the promises that they had made to the Lord God. That wasn't an entirely a surprise to the Lord God. He knew that that would happen. But it did require response from him. First of all, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian armies. Because they refused to keep the Sabbath, uh, to follow their lands, to look out for the poor among them, and most importantly because their worship was divided between the true God and the false gods of the people that lived among them, God allowed the Assyrian armies to come in and to defeat the northern kingdom of Israel and bring them under subjection. Shortly after that, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonian armies because they were following in the footsteps of their northern sisters. They were disobeying the Lord God. They were disregarding the covenants. Their eyes were not on the things of, of the law. They were not trying to please God through their obedience. And so God needed to allow them to see the weight of their rebellion and their sin. So he did not forsake them entirely, but he did allow these nations to come in and to conquer them. These nations then ruled over the Holy Land that should have been Israel's if they had been obedient. Jerusalem was destroyed in this process, the great city of David. And even more important than that city being destroyed, the temple of, of, of God was destroyed. The temple where these Israelites would bring their sacrifices of praise, would bring their offerings to their Lord, was complete rubble after the Babylonians were done with it. 
And so many of these Israelites, after being defeated, were then exiled out of their lands. They were displaced by these new settlers, and they had to go and, and live in foreign places. And they found other Israelites to gather together with, and they tried to hold on to their identity in Yahweh so they would not forget who they were, and so that they could together wait for God to reveal what He was doing by allowing these nations to come in and conquer His people. And after years of waiting, literally decades of waiting for God, God showed his covenant people that he had not forgotten them, that he had a plan to redeem them and to draw them near to him once again, working first uh, through the prophet Ezra, Ezra and then later on through the prophet Nehemiah. God revealed to his chosen people that he was going to bring them back to the Holy Land. He was going to rebuild the things that had been destroyed as a result of their disobedience. And so first, the holy city is raised, and then later on, the temple is raised, and then later on, even the walls that surrounded God's holy city were allowed to be rebuilt. This all began in 537 at the decree of Cyrus, the, the leader of the Persian Empire, which su surprised so many people by saying and declaring that the Jews would be allowed to move back into Jerusalem and begin this rebuilding process. Um, King Artaxerxes later on would allow the, the building of the walls. And this was such a work of God's hand that not only did he allow this to happen, but he used the, God, the, the king's resources that, that was ruling over Israel to fund the project, to help raise the monies that they needed to build these things back up again. You would think that the mighty hand of God, working in history, working through the lives of his people, would cause them to rejoice, to revile in the great mercy that God had poured out on them. But God had a, a greater plan. Not everyone was ready to rejoice. Friends, sometimes we struggle to see what is right before us, the blessing that is right in front of our eyes, because what was is in our way. Or what could be casts such a dark shadow that it prevents us from seeing the blessings that God has right in front of us. So while many in the nation of Israel rejoiced, they were allowed to move back into the nation of Judah and back into the city of David and to rebuild uh, the, the, the city and then the temple and eventually the walls, there were some who did not rejoice. And we're going to read about their story today in Ezra, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to read through verse uh, 13 today. And the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away." This particular section of scripture begins in the middle of the restoration project that I mentioned before we read the passage. Jerusalem was, of course, an incredibly important place for the Israelite people. It was important because it was the place where the Judean kings reigned. 
That was essentially the capital of the nation of God's people. David reigned from there. Solomon reigned from there. It was called, in fact, David's city. And the center of Israelites' culture and influence was traced to that place. The temple, which was so very crucial to the interaction of the Israelites with their God, and that sacrifice system that had been laid before them through the covenant with Moses, was in Jerusalem. And so one of the great crises of the exile was not just that they were displaced and the people had to move, it was that they could not offer sacrifices to their God anymore. That didn't mean that they weren't sinning anymore. They were still sinning. They still needed to offer sacrifice, but they couldn't do it because the temple did not exist anymore. It was, it was leveled to the ground. In fact, if you were a practicing Jew today, that would be a burden on your heart today because they still have no place to take their sacrifices and to offer them rightfully before the Lord God according to the commands of the book of Leviticus. With King Cyrus's decree, stating that the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, the people should have been overjoyed for this. And in some ways, the people were overjoyed. We see here in this interesting passage in Ezra 3 that once that foundation was laid, they stopped to praise God. They gathered together for a special worship service. Even before the walls of the place had been erected, they wanted to thank God for the progress that was being made. They offered Him worship because He deserved it. This is a natural thing to do, isn't it? You know, when we gathered together on Thursdays, it wasn't just because it's another thing we have to do to be good Christians. We gather together because God's doing good things in our lives, and we want to praise Him for that. We come together today to worship, and not just because if we don't, we get a mark by our name and we, we get sent to detention. We come to worship Him on the Lord's Day because He's good, and He loves us, and we, we want to praise His name for it. We want to exalt Him, and we do that in singing. We do that in offering. We do that in serving, <coughs> serving one another. We do that in preaching the Word rightfully. So they gathered together. There was a special worship service there at the foundation that had been laid to, to express their joy and their elation that God was providing a way that he was restoring his people and that they would soon be able to offer sacrifices again to their God. But a certain subset of the people that gathered together in that worship service could not bring themselves to, to experience the joy that was before them. Many of the priests and the Levites, those who had descended from the line of Aaron, this special tribe that was set apart to administer worship in the temple there in Jerusalem, and then many of the older men who served as elders, as rulers over the nation, over the different tribes of Israel's and the households, those men who had been around for a very long time, they didn't begin shouting with joy, they began weeping. They openly cried at the sight of this temple's Foundation. It wasn't with joy that they wept. Why did they weep while others shouted for joy? They wept for several reasons. First of all, this new temple that they saw, or at least the outline of it, because remember, we only have a foundation so far. This new temple is not what it was. These men were old enough to remember what the temple was. And when they saw the outline of this new temple, their hearts broke because it was less than the temple they had known and loved as children. At this point in history, this foundation is all they have, but they can already see that the thing that's going to be built will be a fraction of the glory that was built under the rule of Solomon. The first temple, the temple that was built by David's son Solomon, 
was massive. At some points, it was over 200 feet tall. Inside, it was lined with precious materials. The walls were planked with cedar. So uh, Joanna Gaines was not the first person to do shiplap, apparently. Uh, in the Old Testament, they would line the walls of, of very nice places with cedar boards that the smell of the cedar would, would make it smell beautiful inside. Uh, they decorated the different uh, rooms with different accoutrements and with gold inlay. There was massive amounts of effort and work went into making the temple not only a house for worship, but a beautiful place that displayed the glory of God. Outside of the temple were giant courtyards where festivals could be held and the people could obey the command of, the, of Leviticus by holding the, tabernacle, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of the Trumpets. It was a massive and, and impressive structure. But this current temple, what is sometimes called the Second Temple or Zerubbabel's Temple, was much smaller. It was built with far more limited resources, so they couldn't go all out and make it as beautiful as they wanted it to be. In that first building of the temple, if you go back and read about it in the, in the book of, of Chronicles, when they consecrated that temple, the fire of God came from heaven to light the altar, a miraculous sign that God was pleased with the people and that this was a place of worship. But there, we don't hear of any sign like that here as the Israelites rebuild the smaller temple. It's not marked with a miraculous display like that. So these men who considered the temple a symbol of the greatness of God among his people could not help but be shaken up by the fact that it had such reduced beauty, that it was not going to be this grand thing that would impress the nations and would testify to the amazing, awesome power of Yahweh. Not only did they remember the structure and how great it was, but these elders also, in thinking back, could not help but be brokenhearted because of the fact that they remembered their sin and the sin of those previous generations had led to the destruction of that beautiful temple. And so though they were very glad to be building a new temple, they also wept at the fact that their sin was what made them lose the temple in the first place. They were reminded of their failures. They were reminded of their hard hearts and their rebellious actions toward Yahweh, their Lord God. So this new temple was not what it was. And if any of you have, have had to be humbled like that and, and adjust your lifestyle to fit a, a new way of life that's, that's more humble, that, that doesn't have as much abundance, then you know what that feels like. Secondly, I think these men wept because this new temple was not what they wanted it to be. They wanted this temple to be a testimony to the greatness of their God. They desired to see a structure that would remind them that Yahweh was the only true God worth worshiping. Under Cyrus the the, the Persian king, there was an economy of many different gods who could be worshipped. And the Israelites knew that all of those gods were false gods, that only Yahweh was real, that only Yahweh had come and made a covenant with the people. And so they wanted this building to be an impressive structure so that the nations would know that God was not weak just because he allowed his people, Israel, to be punished for their sinfulness. The covenant that God had established would be upheld and so they desired this building to be more than what it was turning out to be. In very similar ways, friends, I think sometimes at Christmas, as we enter into this holiday season that means so very much to us, we often find ourselves feeling some of the same things that those men were feeling as they wept aloud at the fact that the temple wasn't what they wanted it to be. Many of us look forward to this special time of year and we often have a very specific picture of what Christmas and the surrounding festivities should be like. 
We picture Christmas as this wonderful celebration of our healthy family coming together and rejoicing in harmony with one another. We come and we spend time and we talk and we catch up on the things that we've missed as we've had to be apart from each other. And we think of Christmas as this great healthy gathering, this reunion of loved ones. We, we, we think of Christmas as, as love expressed to one, from one person to another through the giving of presents and gifts. As we express generosity to others, we show them that they're worth much to us because we're willing to, to do nice things for them. And that's just one way that we show that to them. We think of Christmas and we think about rejoicing in the peace that Jesus Christ has given us uh, through his sacrifice. And so Christmas is often this idyllic time in our minds. And to be fair, these, these expectations don't all come from the scripture. Sometimes we have expectations about Christmas that don't come from God's word, but instead they come from other powerful forces in our lives. They come from family tradition. Things that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Patterns that have been set for us that we want to keep. They've been set by our culture. The voice of the culture sometimes builds into us expectations of what Christmas should be like. They're built from our own personal expectations. Our own desires factor in to what we think Christmas ought to be. And these forces have a lot of influence on, on what we envision the holiday to be about. But here's the problem. Our reality doesn't always match that idyllic picture, does it? The reality of life doesn't always turn out to be a Christmas that is defined by great unity and love and togetherness and generosity. Some of us are here today and as we think about Christmas, it, it, it almost holds a sense of dread to us because there are loved ones that we want to be near, people that we care so deeply for that we know we're not going to be able to share that day with. Some of us are going to have an empty seat at the table this Christmas, and it's hard for us to understand how we can still have joy and, and, and persevere with peace and happiness and contentment when that person that we love so dearly is not going to be a part of the festivities that we're used to them being a part of. Others of us, our family is still here, but it isn't healthy. Our family is broken in some way, shape, or form. Sin or addiction or divorce has separated us and scattered us. And, and we think about Christmas and we know there's really no way that those loved ones that we care about will be able to come together because of the conflict that still exists between them. And so for some of us, there, there is almost like a, a difficult shadow being cast on us as we wait for Christmas to come, wondering what kind of new conflicts will arise if we do try to come together. Others have a hard time with Christmas because though they should feel a sense of family and togetherness with others, they don't really have those significant relationships. And so there is a, more of a feeling of insignificance. You look at Christmas as a time when, you're, when a light is shined upon your loneliness and the fact that you don't have many family members left or many close friends that you can spend this holiday with is exposed. And some, for Christmas, have this haunting feeling that I'm a Christian and I should be filled with joy, but how can I, how can I sing joy to the world with a clear conscience when I myself am lacking that very joy? How can I praise the name of Jesus when I myself am burdened by so much sadness during this season? And then compounding that guilt 
for many Christians as the expectation that Christmas should fill us with this sense of joy because of what Christ means during Christmas. And so we double our hardship because we add guilt to our sadness because we cannot bring ourselves to be happy when we know that we should. And I know this isn't what all of us have felt, but many among us here today can probably relate to some of what I just shared with you. In order to guard ourselves from this kind of disappointment and this kind of grief that can come upon us during the holiday season and can in many ways sabotage our joys, I think it's important that we get a more realistic picture in our mind of what Christmas is really about and what it should be. Biblical Christmas was not an entirely peaceful time. It was not some carefree, euphoric period of utter happiness. The birth of Jesus Christ came with struggle, and it carried with it not only joy, but also conflict and a heartache and despair. There is a grim gravity to what Jesus planned to do in the body that he had taken on when he became a man, when he was born to a virgin in that little town of Bethlehem. There is a, a foreboding, a foreshadowing. Christmas makes the cross possible, doesn't it? For Christ to die as a man, he must first take on life as a baby, as an infant human. And so we cannot separate those two things entirely. They are tied together one to the other. So to get a more accurate picture, I think what we need to do is turn back to the New Testament. If, you, if you've moved to Luke chapter 2 for me. Luke chapter 2. At this point in the Christmas narrative, as we join Luke's testimony of Jesus' early life, we have already seen the angel come and minister to Mary and to Joseph and to reveal to them God's plan to give them a child, even though they had never consummated a marriage. Even though Mary was still a virgin, God revealed to them that this was his miracle that he was bringing into her life. By Luke chapter 2, where we're going to be today, we've already seen uh, both Mary and Joseph traveling as Mary was pregnant to the city of Bethlehem as they obeyed the, the census commands. We've already seen Mary give birth and the shepherds come and witness this birth. We've seen a host of angelical angels proclaiming and heralding the fact that God's anointed has arrived. So here in, in chapter 2, Mary and Joseph are taking the infant Jesus a few days after his birth to Jerusalem, to that temple where they intend to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and to show God their great thankfulness, their, their grateful hearts at this baby that they have received as such a, a, a true gift. And so we join Luke chapter 2 in verse 25, and we're going to read through to verse 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for cons the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Real quick, let me explain that a little bit. This man was devout. He had the Holy Spirit, which means that he was a man who loved the Lord and who the Lord was using in strong and powerful ways, but he's waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means that this man, Simeon, knows that God needs to do something on behalf of his nation. God needs to bring salvation to them because they can't bring it about themselves. 
So he's looking back to the prophecies that show up in Isaiah and in the Psalms and in so many different places in the Old Testament that point forward to this one who would come from David's line and reestablish the, the, the nation of Israel as God's chosen people and would give them salvation from the sins that have caused them to be so far away from God. This man is named Simeon. And verse 26 goes on to tell us, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The word Christ means anointed one, one who is set aside for a special work. So this man had been shown somehow by the Spirit that he would not die before God revealed to him the very man who would be that Messiah, that anointed one that Israel had been waiting so long for. Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in, child, in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that it is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Mary and Joseph have an encounter with this man Simeon in the temple. And we're told that Simeon was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's a godly man. We can trust him. We're also able to deduce from the scripture here that he's old. It seems as though he's ready to die, but he knows that he can't do that yet because God has told him he will see something before his death. And God keeps his promises. We don't know if this man is a Levite or if he serves in the temple, but we do know that he arrives at the temple at the same time that Mary and Joseph arrive uh, to give grace to the Lord for this blessing of Jesus, their son. Simeon knows that God will allow him to see the Messiah before he departs. And the spirit that is within Simeon reveals to him that this little baby in the arms of Mary and in the arms of Joseph is that child he has been waiting for. He is the anointed one the Christ Jesus. No doubt there is great joy in this revelation. So much is about to change and Simeon recognizes this right away. God will overcome sin for all who are drawn to him. And amazingly enough, he prophesies here, not only will the Jews receive this great blessing, but the Gentiles will receive this great blessing as well. Salvation will be opened up to them. And as we studied through Luke, we, we saw how much great pains Luke took to reveal to us that salvation was not just to the Jews, but that God would allow the Gentiles to be drawn in as well. And so he says, verse 30 again, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Salvation, light, glory, hope for all nations. There is joy here. But we see in the same way that Simeon responds that there is sadness as well, don't we? Simeon blesses these faithful parents and refers to the prophecies that they had received from the angel, indicating that Jesus would in fact be used for great and miraculous things. But then Mary is told 
that a sword will pierce through her own soul also. This is a compassionate nod to the fact that Mary would be raising her son for the express purpose that Jesus might give up that precious life on the cross for unworthy sinners like us. Jesus didn't just come to earth for a party. Jesus didn't just come to earth on some public relations tour. He came to give his very life for us. He came to die. He came to suffer and to live with us. See, Jesus came to suffer for us, but Jesus also came to suffer with us, alongside us, to experience the hardships of life that you and I have to carry through this world on a day-to-day -day basis. If you are heavy-hearted this Christmas season because life is not what you expected it to be, it's not what you hoped for, this sermon will not likely erase that sadness entirely. But friend, you can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls, has loved us to such a degree that he would subject himself to the same kind of hurts that we feel. When Jesus left the safety of heaven, when Jesus walked away from the peace of that perfect place, he agreed to humble himself and to take on the form of a lowly man. And it meant that he was willingly exposing himself to the fallout of sin on earth. All of the consequences of sin that we see all around us would then afflict Jesus as well when he came and took on a human body. That means that he began to live within the confines of time. He had to wait for each new day. The sun would rise, the sun would set, and he would have to travel along that period of time just like you and I do. It meant that he would have to be subject to all the limitations of the human body. He couldn't just be alert and awake all the time. He would be fatigued at times. He would grow tired and weary. He would need rest. I'm sure there were times when Jesus experienced sickness. We know that he was hungry at times, that he didn't have enough food, and he was, he was impoverished with, for nourishment. We know that God struggled the way that we struggle because he took on a real human body. He experienced pain. He experienced discomfort. He experienced loneliness. You see, life on earth is all lived under the shadow of death. The first Adam, Adam in the garden, committed sin against God. And ever since then, every human being that has come from Adam and Eve's bloodline, which is everyone, has experienced the weight and the consequence of sin. We are born with sinful hearts, and we see the degrading power of sin all around us in our lives. Hebrews 4 in the New Testament describes how Jesus' willingness to share in our sufferings is such a blessing to us. Throughout his life, Jesus experienced loss of loved ones, didn't he? People that he cared about died. He wept over their loss. He experienced betrayal by the people that should have been nearest to him. When he grew up in Nazareth, his own brothers doubted that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was sent of God. The people in Nazareth gave him no honor at all. And then later on, even his own 12 disciples questioned him when he revealed to them what God had intended to do with his life. When he said, I'm going to go and give my life in Jerusalem, they said, no, Lord, may it not be so. They didn't trust him at first. And then, of course, we know that one of the 12 disciples, Judas, would even sell Jesus Christ for a bag of silver. You've probably experienced some kind of letdown from someone near to you, someone that you love, someone that you trusted, but no one has ever sold you into slavery. 
Jesus experienced that. He knows what it's like to experience utter loneliness. And so Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, remind us that we are blessed to know that we serve a God who is close. He is not far away. And whatever burden you think you carry in by yourself today, if you are a son or daughter of the king, then he intends to carry that burden for you. Look at Hebrews 14 through 16 in chapter 4. Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does that mean, that he passed through the heavens? It means that he dwelt in heaven eternally, but he was willing to come through the heavens to take on a human body here on earth, that he descended into this world to live as we lived. Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brother, sister, if you are suffering this holiday season, you are not suffering alone if your trust is in Jesus Christ for salvation. He knows what you feel. He experiences suffering alongside you. He didn't just come to suffer on your behalf. He came to suffer with you. You might be familiar with a popular uh, Christmas song called Mary Did You Know? And it's a, it's a beautiful song. It's a very heartwarming song. Tugs at the heartstrings, I should say. And uh, there are, this part of the song that I don't really agree with, uh, they talk about how it, the whole premise is, Mary, as you held that little babe in your hands, did you know that he would grow up to give his life on the cross? Did you know he would suffer the way that he did? And by reading scripture, we know that Mary knew. She was aware of it. She was, she was totally aware of the fact. Simeon just pointed it out to her again that she would be pierced through with a sword because of her heartache. She would feel great grief because the fact that she knew this little boy would grow up to die for the sins of, of mankind. So the song's a little bit weird in its premise, but it is powerful, and people, I, I believe, identify with it because of the great contrast that it shows. It stands out as this picture of a beautiful, innocent little baby that will one day grow to give his life. And so many times we separate, we divorce Christmas and Easter as if they're two very separate things, when in reality, you cannot have one without the other. Jesus would not have come if he did not need to die for us. And Jesus could not have died for us if he did not come and take on flesh and live perfectly without sin. Friends, we often stumble in our perception of what Christmas should be. Sometimes we, we get caught up in the idea of what we think Christmas could be. Christmas is not, however, some blank canvas upon which we paint the beautiful picture of our perfect family life. That's not what Christmas is supposed to be. Life is never perfect on this side of heaven. Life is fractured. It is by its very nature strained. It is dysfunctional. And we need to come to terms with that fact. Even when things go right in our lives or we perceive them to go right, we have to forget much of what lingers below the surface in order to convince ourselves that it's the ideal we envision. Perfect life is never perfect. The good life that you see in someone else, the family that you wish you had, they have hardships that you can't even imagine that you just don't see because they're not available for you to look at. 
every human being struggles and suffers. Even when things go right, there are things that are wrong in life. So Christmas isn't heaven on earth. Heaven alone is heaven. The closest thing we have to heaven on earth isn't a once a year holiday. It's Jesus Christ every day. Every moment of every day, trusting in this Jesus who has come to suffer by our side and has suffered in ways we could never suffer to make us clean and whole and holy before the Lord God. If you are a believer who is burdened by sadness through this time of year because life has fallen short of giving you true happiness, then your remedy is this. Rest again in the Jesus Christ that you have come to know. Remember that that the Lord that you put your faith and trust in has cared for you in tremendous ways, ways that another human will never care for you, that his promise will always be kept and he will not let you down. Now be careful that you don't attribute promises to Christ that he has never made. He has not promised to give you everything that you want, but he has promised you things greater than what you could imagine. You can be near to the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and there is a place being prepared for you that you will dwell with him forever. And while you are here on earth, before he comes to receive you for that place, you get to experience his strength and power working in your life. So if you are a believer and and the holidays have been a burden to you, I urge you to remember the great blessing of Jesus and knowing him and being near to him. And if you are not yet a, a believer, if you are not a Christian today, and we talk about Christmas and its meaning, if you carry a burden, I urge you to seek the one solution that can really make a difference in your life. And that is faith and trust in Jesus. We must have Christ if we have any chance at hope in this world. Otherwise, all we end up doing is stacking one solution that is temporary after another solution that is temporary. All the while, just building our frustration when the things of the world do not satisfy us and do not overcome the weaknesses of our life. But when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, We come to terms with the fact that we are a sinful people that cannot solve our own sinful problem. Every burden that we have in this life, every broken facet of our families comes originally from sin. And the scripture teaches us that the only solution for our sin is not church attendance, it is not good deeds or putting extra money in the Salvation Army bucket. The only salvation that we can have is through God's great gift of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, not just to be an example to us and and show us what's possible. He lived a perfect life so that he could let that perfect life die on the cross for us, be punished for our sin, so that you and I would not have to experience the heartbreak of, of God's wrath for eternity. So trust in Jesus Christ today. Throw your life at his feet and experience what Christmas is really about. It's about Jesus, God's answer for our broken world. If you are a believer here today and and, and you're listening to this sermon and you're thinking, well, I'm not all that burdened right now. I I wish we would have a little happier sermon, actually. It's Christmas time. Let's all cheer up. There's good things to be happy about. Then I want to challenge you this season. If that's your heart today, please be careful, friends, that you do not add to the heartache of another person's grief by condemning them for it. I think sometimes we almost get put out by somebody who doesn't share the same joy we have at Christmas time. And we almost feel like they're they're dampening the mood or they're putting a weight on us that we don't want to have to carry. And all we do when we treat them like that is further condemn their already heavy heart. 
Friends, if you have Jesus Christ, that is your joy in the holiday season. It's not perfect circumstances. So if somebody else comes near to you and they're sad and they're heavy laden, they're not putting your happy Christmas at risk as long as your Christmas is happy for the right reasons. If your Christmas is happy about because Jesus came to save us, then it's not in jeopardy whatsoever. So rather than make that person feel bad or out of place by being heavy laden, make the effort to come and sit next to that man or that woman, that child, and show them that though you may not have all the solutions to their problems, you care them enough to be with them through it. So many of your loved ones who are hurting in this time really just need someone to hear them. They need someone to put an arm around them and to listen to them as they, they talk about their struggles and about their heartaches. Be a friend to someone this Christmas. Listen to their weeping and weep along with them if necessary so that they will know that they are not alone. Ultimately, your presence will be a blessing to them, but you could be an even greater presence if you point them to the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. Hear them out. Listen to them. Weep with them. Pray with them. But then gently remind them of the great joy that they can have in Jesus. Remind them that every suffering that we go through in this earth is a temporary suffering and will one day be solved by God when we are glorified and come together to live with Him forever in the peace that only He can provide. Come near to those who are hurting and share in their grief. Returning to the passage of Ezra that we began with today, it ends on a really interesting note. In verse 13 of Ezra 3, it says this, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great joy and the sound was heard from far away. I find it very interesting in this passage that the solution to the weeping of those older Israelites was not for God to say, I'm sorry you feel so sad, let's make a bigger temple. God does not remove the difficult circumstances that cause their weeping, but instead those who are weeping come near to those who are rejoicing and together with one voice, they lift up their concerns to the Lord God. And their voices mingle together and become one. And I think this is a picture of, of, of the amazing way that even the church in the New Testament can with joy come around those who are hurting and say, you don't have a place to be for Christmas? We'll make room for you at our table. We want you close to us. You're hurting this holiday season? Let me hear out what's causing your heart to be heavy. Let me listen to you. Let me show you that you're not the only one around here that cares about what you're dealing with. And when God's people come together, there can be a beautiful unity that's not completely without sadness or grief, but that is tied together in such a way that the griefs of this world can be overcome by the joys that Jesus Christ can give us while we walk through this world. Would you please bow with me as we ask God to give us the strength to see these things the way he desires for us to see them. And then in just a moment, we're going to enter in a time of worshiping him through the Lord's table. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being a blessing to us. And we know that there is no greater hope or joy than what you can give to us, Lord God. And I know that there are very real hurts that people are experiencing here. And this sermon in no way is meant to minimize those hurts, Lord God. You care for what we care for. But Father, we need to remember that everything that we experience here on this earth is only a fraction of what reality truly is, that there is a greater truth that exists for us beyond this life. 
Father, you did not make us for a short time on this earth and then life is finished. You made us for eternity. And through the salvation we can have in Jesus, that eternity can be ours. And so, Lord God, may we, if necessary, re-engineer our idea of what Christmas should really be about so that we can make room for some of this grief that we, we experience, acknowledging it and ministering to those who experience it, Lord God, and bringing them through, through grace to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we are not alone in all of this, that you are a great high priest who ministers, ministers to our every need. And he doesn't do so from a faraway place, but you do so from a place of understanding, God. You, you can identify and empathize with everything that we feel so we don't have to feel alone. I praise you, God, for the Lord's table, which I pray will be and trust will be a great experience that we share together in grace today. May it be a blessing to us and point our eyes back to the cross where great victory can be ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.